Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. So you go from the Caribbean to Canada via Peru and apparently the whole cyberverse and the rest of the world. Dwayne Matthews is not only our favourite Dwayne in the whole world, he's one of our favourite people in the whole world. He's the Head of School Innovation and Partnerships at Ontario Virtual School in Canada. He is a Chief Innovation Evangelist. He's a Future of Education Strategist. He helps people all over the world think about where you need to get to. And he doesn't let them get away with looking backwards or standing still because he demands that we think about the solutions that our children need to thrive in the world. Part of this is because he loves his own children as much as everybody else's children. He's inspiring, he's wonderful, he is ridiculously handsome, he is a brilliant thinker. Dwayne Matthews, I can't wait, I'm excited, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course, we are proud to be partnered with the education team of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia's capital city. Looking for civics and citizenship experiences and resources to empower voice and agency in your Australian classroom? The MOAD Learning Team have got you covered with on-site and online experiences for teachers and young people of all ages. Visit MOAD Learning at M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. That's M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you here at the Game Changers Series 12 with our wonderful guests who we have all encountered previously once before, a number of years ago when we did a special, special episode with, with Dwayne for, uh, for Relearn Barcelona. Now, Phil... I'm going to get straight to our guests because I'm really not interested in your friends and in the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy about quinoa and tofu and kale because that's just a waste of time, really, it's isn't it? Typical close-mindedness that I'd expect from you, Deprada. Exactly, exactly. Let's get straight to the meat and veg of this conversation, Phil. None of that, none of that witchcraft stuff that you people eat there in that <laughs> that area of Fitzroy. Dwayne, it's so wonderful to have you on our show again. Uh, it's a real, it's a real pleasure for us to to encounter. Uh, your humanity and your heart and, and your wisdom. So I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all our guests. What has brought you here today? Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are. So, um, well, well, thanks a lot for, for the introduction and um, I really appreciate it. So a, a little bit about me. Um, as you mentioned before, I am actually born in Toronto, but spent the first 12 years of my life uh, in, a, in, a, in a little country, little big country called Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I left there. Um, my, my plan was to actually swim on the Canadian Olympics team. And I, I left and I went to Toronto to some of the Canadian Olympic team. 
and uh, then met a, a, a lovely girl, and uh, that distracted me. Um, I eventually won out. She became my wife, so that I, I think I won there. Um, then I got into education. I taught grades three, four, five, and six, um, and a little bit of library. I taught at what's called an inner city school in Toronto. We, we call it a model school because we're, we're super polite. Um, and I also taught at an independent school in Lima, Peru, did a little bit of strategic planning. And what, uh, where I, I, I have a little bit of difference is that I left that and I got into technology transfer and innovation scouting on behalf of Fortune 500 companies, which really focused me on looking at how technology and innovation would transform paradigms. And it made me realize that a lot of education was not aligned with these shifts that large companies were focused on. And this was going to have a profound impact. Mm-hmm. And so that sent me down this road. And here I am and sitting in front of you guys. Yeah, we're definitely going to go down a path of having a conversation around tech-enriched learning ecosystems. We're definitely going to have a conversation around the value of a sustainable direction of, of a solution architect. Before we do, I want to come to this point around permission and influence. I want to start with influence. I think over a month or so ago, I saw this beautiful post that you did, whether it was either on on LinkedIn or maybe even on your Instagram, that was a photo of you sitting opposite your son uh, at a cafe. And it was a a moment of ritual that was going on there. It was almost like um, you coming together and giving him permission to enter into his own manhood, although he's still quite young. And what struck me about that was the influence of our fathers you know, that we that have on our lives or, or significant people in our lives. So much beautiful. Th- and thank you for sharing that with you about, about your son. I thought it was just a beautiful moment and, and, and ritual and, and passing on and, and no doubt uh, something that, that would have deeply resonated with, with him in terms of his connectedness to you. And by you giving him this time, he knows how much you value him and see him and love him. I love it. I love it. It's just a, a beautiful moment between a father and a son. Influence is such an important element of making change. Uh, or, or, or at least planting the seed of it. The work that you're doing, particularly now with Ontario Virtual School, is is influencing around the possibility of of a tech enriched ecosystem working beautifully hand in glove with our inherent needs as humans. Before we get to that, who's influenced you in your educational career, and why? So, um, yeah, no, thanks a bunch, and, and it's. Um... You know, I'll, I'll touch a little bit on the first piece. The the event that you're talking about is something that my son and I have, which is called the Initiation Dinner. And um, we, we try to do it every year. We, we didn't do it through COVID, but we, we get dressed up. We get, you know, suits made, um, shirts pressed. I usually get shirts made. Um, and we spend about a month before sort of getting ready for the event. So everything from etiquette and, and, and we pick a theme. And we pick that theme and we discuss the theme when we're when we're there. And so it's it's just us um, that we go together. And so that was something that was very important to me um, because I grew up with at, at least for the first 15 years of my life with no father. Um, I, I eventually got a stepfather, um, but I grew up with no father. But I really had uh, a moment with my grandfather mm-hmm. when I turned 23. And, and this moment uh, before 23, I didn't drink. Anything that in this moment, my grandfather took me aside and had this conversation with me. And so one of the things that I realized from that conversation is that 
the space between where I'd like to go um, can be shortened by people that have gone there before. And so in terms of education, what are some of the, the profound people that have sort of shaped my direction? So the first person I would say is a, is a gentleman by the name of Fred Wesson. Um, Fred hired me to go to Franklin D. Roosevelt in Lima, Peru, um, and, and really took a chance. Uh, everybody that got hired that year had uh, PhDs and, and masters. And, um, you know, I, I was sort of a kid coming from um, the, a, a model school in Toronto. And we had a moment where we, we sat down and he sort of started to ask me questions about, you know, my thoughts on education and leadership. And, I, and at that point, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't really that deep for me. Um, somebody asked me, you know, Dwayne, was teaching always your passion and your purpose? And I said, you know, how I got into teaching, I was standing in the registrar about to pay off my student loan. And my ex-girlfriend at the time walked in and I wanted to talk to her. And she said, hey, what are you doing after school? And I said, I don't know. And she said, I, I want to be a teacher. And here's the form. And that's how I became my teacher in the first time and, and then really fell in love with it after that moment. Um, but this conversation with Fred was, was very profound because it, it pointed me in a certain direction, thinking about, you know, school and education and what was core to, to learning how to learn um, as opposed to content. I'd realized that, you know, content was becoming a commodity. So certain things are really important Certain things were changing because there was just so much, but how do you really kind of get down and learn how to learn? Um, so that was something that I set out on the path to think about um, and, and, and how to achieve things. And the other is a gentleman by the name of Ben DuPont. And, and Ben DuPont is the middle son of the DuPont family who's not in education at all. Um, I, I, again, very fortunately ran into him after reading a book. Um, I sent an email to three companies and he happened to be the person that responded. I didn't know who he was. Um, we had a conversation and maybe about a couple of weeks after I realized who he was and, and who I was having this conversation with. But we really talked about how innovation combines to transform. And a lot of people don't know this, but Ben's family has um, been involved in education for a long time. As a matter of fact, the, the, the first African-American school in the United States, I believe, was started by one of his relatives um, in, in Philadelphia. And so, you know, he, he sort of quietly was following this along. And so those two people sort of converged to create innovation, technology, and education. And then my own experience with my grandfather sort of emerged and gave birth to, to the way that I think. So uh, I love that you, you didn't just share with us who these who these people were that influenced you, but they, you also just shared with us how how they influenced you, and uh, through through personal connection with these individuals and, and, and building that that beautiful dialogue and exchange with them, uh, I'm, I'm hearing that they opened your eyes to challenging some binary ways in which we do things, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they presented to you just alternative perspectives so that so that you could continue to expand your mind. You do that. You do that on a regular basis. Your posts do that. Your work does that. Your practice does it on a regular basis. Everything about Dwayne Matthews is, is about this mission of helping people see uh, possibility. The role of tech in ecosystems. What can it look like in our schools? 
and into the future in terms of possibility? Yeah. And so when I think about technology, the, the first thing that I always say to people is that technology has always been a part of our schools at scale. Um, you know, we, we had a, a 600 year old technology called the printed book um, that nobody really knew what to do with uh, until you know, someone in Prussia came along with a model and that was adopted. We surrounded that technology with, you know, a pencil from 1662, a pen from 1888, you know, a blackboard from 1801, and we turned it into a strategy. And that strategy had limitations, but it also allowed us to do really profound things. And so, you know, we have the society that we have fundamentally because of that. And we mitigated the risk, right? There's a significant amount of risk to books in schools because you have to sit for, for six hours, um, 192 days, and, and, and sitting is, is actually quite detrimental. Um, the leading cause of death for human beings is still heart disease. And you know the, the, the biggest correlation to that is lack of movement and sedentary lifestyle and, and actually sitting. And so, but we still mitigated the risk and we said, you know what, it, it's so profound that we should go ahead and use it. So technology today, digital technology today, the convergence of digital technology, um, is similar. And when I say similar, I mean that it's not an end or be all, right? So people say, Dwayne, you're the tech guy. And I said, no, I'm not the tech guy. They say, you're the, the online guy. And I say, no, I'm, I'm not the online guy. Um, the technology is a hammer. It's a screwdriver. And that hammer and that screwdriver is part of a strategy that we need to build. So when I think about how we use digital technology, I think about what are the challenges that we actually need to solve in terms of education? And then what are the pieces of digital technologies that we can aggregate and curate to solve some of those problems? And, and I can get into you know, some very practical ideas around that, right? Um, you know, I can't listen for six hours a day, um, 192 days, and so if I'm unable to do that, then, you know, chances of me succeeding year after year drops and my self-efficacy and the way that I think about myself may drop. Um, you know, I need to move. Like I, I have a daughter. I mentioned my daughter's five. She, she can't sit still. And so I, I worry um, about her because I think she's quite brilliant. Um, and it's not just because, uh, you know, every fisherman thinks their fish is fresh, but I think she's, she's brilliant. But if she's unable to sit for long periods of time, um, what does that do within the framework? So I would look at that and I would think of how can we leverage technology to create new models to give more access to different learners or learners that have different strengths um, or, or are interested in different ways of learning? How could we do that to give more and not necessarily to to supplement what's there. Because what's there, if we use post-secondary as a, as a benchmark, most countries around the world have about a 30 to 35% success rate um, in terms of kids going to post-secondary. So how do we provide more options for students for post-secondary opportunities, leveraging technology? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in that and, and how those things are, are put together versus thinking you know, we have one way of doing things, um, you know, in person, and then we have another way um, online. And, you know, the conversation is, is one or the other. I think that's a false binary. 
I think the conversation really needs to be, what do we need to do if we'd like to become more human, we'd like to move, how can we leverage all of technology and techniques to allow us to do that? Um, and then go find the, the tools in the toolbox to get that done. Brian, thank you for sharing that. Um, the tendency of any system is to control rather than to liberate. The tendency of any system, therefore, is to encourage people to be passive rather than active in what it is they do. I'm sitting here, it's 11.23 in the morning. I've been sitting in my chair since 8 o'clock. I've barely moved. And why? Because the technology allows that to happen. I'm not sure that anybody actively conspired to put me in my chair without movement for nearly you know, three and a half, four hours. Um, but that's the way it happens. How do we, therefore, use a technology-enriched environment to empower each and every child? What does this look like in practice? How do we resist the passives? Yeah, so, so great question. Great, great question. And, and I love the way that you framed it. So the first thing I'll say is somebody has forced you to sit for, for all those hours. You just don't remember. It's automaticity. When you went into, you know, whatever they called kindergarten level five or six, um, they broke your spirit to get you to sit. Um, you, you, you probably didn't want to. They told you how to line up really well. The teachers did. Um, and they made you line up and walk in a straight line down the hall, which is, you know, sort of irrelevant really in, in grown life. But there's a certain amount of compliance. And, and if you did well, um, they, they reported back to your parents that you were doing yeah, a good job. And, and, and you know what, Brian, 50 years on, and we're arguing in, in on Twitter whether or not we should be adopting um, the practices of schools where kids walk in straight lines silently down corridors. It's yeah. human. It, it's like this is part of the challenge when we talk about the human is that part of the human is to be free and part of the human is also to restrict the freedom of others. It's that yeah. dichotomy that sits within the soul of all of us, of each of us. And even though modern politics imagines that whichever side we're on is the side which is about freedom, the other side is about curtailing freedom, uh, of course, it, it's the journey of every individual. We oscillate between them. So, so what does technology look like when it empowers kids to be, um, to be active, to take, uh, to have voice, to have agency, to have autonomy? So I, I, I think you bring up a good point, right? Which is order. Um, you know, we are in the stage where we are reorganizing our intersubjective realities because we had one set of order and we eventually tell ourselves a story that this is true um, and it's objective. And then we usually have some form of innovation or technology that dislodges that story. So once upon a time, that was, you know, people reading a book and, and realizing that the book in Latin and in, in religion may not necessarily have it all um, locked in. And so we do that. So how does it empower students? Well, I think we look at how do we leverage technology to disrupt other industries? So we borrow from other industries and we look for the framework that sits below. And there are lots of opportunities for us to see how other industries have transformed themselves either through disruption, which is disruption from the bottom or disruption from the top. Um, I'm a big fan of Clayton Christensen and, and he maps this out really clearly. 
um, in, in the three books that he wrote. And, you know, there's probably a, a, a million videos of him speaking about it. But if you look at, um, you know, if I think of future of education conversations as an incumbent, so the incumbent would probably be you know, an international top-notch private school. And you can hear that conversation really is about sustaining what we're doing and extending that. And along comes different models and, and those models come from different places. So you may find, for example, um, okay, I'll give you an example. There's, there's a school that we're working with um, and I say school, an institutional organization and they have a football club, right? So for those listening in North America, soccer, the rest of us know that it's football. Uh, so they, they, they have a football club and their idea was we're going to train these elite athletes and we're going to leverage Ontario Virtual School's model for these elite athletes to be able to use the technology to allow them to train more. And then somebody comes around and says, wait a minute, what if they don't want to be elite athletes? What if they just want to play soccer and do school? And all of a sudden, this now becomes a legitimate model. And this model starts to transform because now somebody else comes along and says, hey, I have this really cool neuroscience technology that can enhance mental processing speed. And it's based on peer review. And so now we put those things together and we realize we can enhance cognitive ability. We can increase IQ. Kids can be moving and playing soccer. Maybe they go on to... To, to be a, a professional football player or not, but they come out in the end with the same preparation, standard preparation for university, but they've had a completely different experience because of the technology. And they're coming out maybe one or two IQ points higher than the kids that are sitting. That's transformative in the sense that it may not necessarily go into the mainstream because we may bang our heads all day long speaking to, to superintendents and the like, but that model at a disruptive price point starts to create an option or opportunity, very much like how other models emerge in other markets. And so you start to see those models, not at scale, but you start to see them coming. The other is in terms of the students themselves. Um, one of the things that's quite profound, you know, we, we went into a number of countries around the world um, that, you know, that, that people will call developing countries. And we say, hey, we have 160 courses and it's awesome. And, and you know, here's our, our metaverse platform and we use all these things. And, you know, students are like, listen, I need to not be poor. And so I just need to get to post-secondary in the UK, the United States um, or Canada. And how do I do that? Do you want to be an engineer? Whatever leaves me not poor is what I want to be. That kind of urgency is something that we don't always appreciate in Western countries. Um, like, you know, real urgency. My, my family has remortgaged the entire farm. Uh, you know, people say bet the farm, they've actually bet the farm. And so we have technology creating massive opportunities for hundreds of millions of kids that a lot of the conversation I have on LinkedIn, people never give it a second thought that, you know, we don't have the majority of kids on the planet in the Western countries, right? No, we, we sure don't. Um, Dwayne, what's the best idea or best thing you've seen recently in a classroom or in a learning space 
that you wish had been your idea? It's a good one. I would have to say someone using, there's a classic uh, technology called neurofeedback technology. And so it's now brought to, it's usually done with an EEG, but it's now it's brought to portable EEGs and people putting portable EEGs um, while students are going through a process of learning and teaching them how to recognize EEG signatures of focus. And the reason why I think that that's interesting is because in a world that is flooded with information, the ability to command your focus on cue, um, I think is going to be a superpower. If I look out into the world, um, particularly post pandemic, I find here in Toronto, there seems to be a lot of anger. A lot of people that are angry and and they can tell you exactly why they're angry because, you know, they've, but what they don't have command over is their ability to select and sustain their attention in a particular direction because they're flooded with information. And that makes it very, very difficult for them to think critically. And so I think having that is, is, is something that I, I, I think is brilliant. I've seen it and I've seen it combined with physical activity while kids were still performing. And I thought, you know, I, I wish I came up with that. There's so much that I I really always value when uh, I encounter what you write, what you talk about, and 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 these opportunities to be in your presence, Dwayne, because of of two two fundamental things. One, I love that you're schooling Phil on the world game of football and helping him better understand oh, that, that game. Please. That game is truly a world Lord. game. <clears throat> oh. Secondly, secondly, and more oh. importantly, is I I love I love opportunities to encounter with you because so much of what you you share is this deep dive into your inherent curiosity uh and and but you do it with with beautiful compassion but you have enormous courage to stick to your convictions about them what could be and and you take us always on on a a beautiful journey so it's a real gift uh and so i really value that and so thank you and sitting here listening to you respond to phil's questions i couldn't help but wonder why do we do certain things that we do in our schools you know, and and mm-hmm. and the school community's ability to, to, to clearly make the case for embedded and emerging practice in, in ways that kind of aligns their beliefs about what learning is and their deep and what they deeply value and what they're deeply committed to, but ultimately what it could be for children uh, is kind of this critical part. I feel we're at right now. You know, this 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 point in our time where creating experiences that ultimately help young people to thrive in their, their future is something I know that you are continually crafting with, with the Ontario Virtual School and, and, and through your, your um, keynote and public speaking uh, opportunities. How can we then help leaders in schools build a more authentic view of assessment and start measuring the things that really matter? Yeah, so that, that is a really, really difficult question. Um, and I'll tell you why. It's because we don't always have an honest conversation about the key things of formal school at scale, right? So, so formal school at scale is, you know, is a massive strainer. It's a filter. And the filter is, you know, we're looking for certain types of students that we believe in a time gone past 
that would be certain types of, of employees and other types would be other types of employees. And I think we have some really hard gatekeeping that goes through those filters, right? So I, I, I had a, I mean, I won't call it school, but I, I had a pretty interesting conversation with a professor at a, a really well-known university. And, you know, I mean, he, his conversation was, hey, you know, it needs to be like cowardice, <laughs> right? And, and, and because he's thinking in his mind, there's a certain person that I'm looking for that I think has the highest level of value in our society. And the system that we have is the best to do that. His thinking is, you know, we're not going to get more than 35%, right? His thinking is we already have the perfect strainer to strain. And he doesn't really want to say that. He may say, you know, hey, it's, it's about learning. But at the end of the day, he's looking for someone that has done exactly what he's done, right? Um, he, he's seeing himself as the apex and he's looking for that. And he's thinking this is what organizations want. And I think the disconnection between all of the parts is the first piece. So nobody really knows in schools what organizations want because they don't speak to organizations. Nobody really knows what the future demands because they don't spend any time thinking about the future. Um, nobody really knows you know, what we can do in terms of neuroscience because they lightly brush on it, but they don't really get into the nitty gritty of, of neuroscience, right? Like they, they get into you know, third-hand information that comes out in a really nice book, you know, the white books with the blue writing, um, as opposed to the journal paper themselves, um, where you go into the journal paper and say, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds important. And maybe I need to need, read a hundred more papers to get it. So I think helping people to unlock that, the first thing, and, and this is something that I think, you know, we've talked about before, is you have to unlock post-secondary opportunities and if you unlock post-secondary opportunities, those that have had the most difficult time to get to those post-secondary opportunities will leap at that first. And that will start to slowly transform the system from around. But I think that's the key piece. The key piece is the assessment is really a gate. And how can you unlock other opportunities that are provided by that specific gate? So I have to go to university. I have to get a degree in engineering and science and business an MBA and an engineering degree, and I have the, the, the best combination. Well, there are other avenues and combinations. How do you scale those and unlock those? Because I think that allows people to say, hey, even as an educator, maybe I can take a risk. Because as a superintendent, I wouldn't want to take a risk, right? I, I'm, I'm sitting here. It's easy for me to criticize, but I may say, hey, listen, I have like five more years left. Um, I have a cabin that I have to pay for, and I could go take a chance here, and this whole thing could blow up. Um, and, you know, so I can just ride this out, create some small incremental changes, which is safe. So I'm not standing in front of a bus and I leave it for somebody else behind. And that's, I think, typically where the challenge is. And we can look to other industries to help us unlock that. But we, we look in education alone um, and think that education alone is going to help solve our problem. But I think the, the solutions for our problems exist in other industries. So let's let's pick up on this, Dwayne. Yeah, uh, uh, there's there's so much to your bio that you know there's um you know you, you've been an advisory board member an education leader at research centres um uh, you've directed um 
technology intelligence firms, you, you worked in an area of venture capital, um, innovation marketplaces. Like, it, you have always been at the intersection between technology and finance and education. Um, you are not frightened to step over into what many educators would see as the dark side of, of, of the corporate world and more than that, of the capitalist structure uh, that we in education serve, although I think many people forget that our job is to serve society and I think that we, we, we imagine that we in education can, can unravel um, sometimes um, that those fundamentals of a, of a capitalist society without proposing anything realistic in, in return. I'll get off my soapbox um, mm -hmm. for the moment. But, but, uh, a lot of your social purpose is realised through your own history in enterprise capital and your willingness to bridge that gap between society and what society is doing and how it moves forward. And as you said, the tendency of education to preside over what was and what is a received legacy rather than a bold, big step forward and up, which is what we at Game Changers keep advocating for, even if we have to do that by increments um, along the way. What is it that school leaders can learn from leaders outside of education to help them take their institutions um, to a place where they can take the big steps forward and up and they stop presiding over what was? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the things that they can learn is how certain innovation companies disrupt themselves safely. So the, the, the challenge that a lot of um, any incumbent structure has is how do we disrupt ourselves safely? Um, how do we create strategies? Let's call them red team, blue team strategies that allow us to incubate certain ideas and we have certain mechanisms to allow those ideas to grow or die. Um, there are lots of innovation companies that do a, a fantastic job of this. Uh, one that I could think of is 3M. Um, I had an opportunity to, to visit 3M a couple of times in, um, in, in Minnesota. It's a big space looking building. It looks like the 70s in, on the outside and it looks like 2029 on, 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 on the inside. And they have a very specific format of how they create disruptive innovation. The, the folks at Apple um, are a great example, right? They've eaten their own products on numerous occasions, right? Everybody's diving down into the phone right now. They're, they're like, meh, on the phone, but, you know, they're crushing on the watch. Um, they, you know, they, they've destroyed their own iPod and they did that through a very careful process. So I think education leaders can create these kinds of opportunities for transformation. They can backstop them. They can start to sit down and think, what is actually fundamental? If we're just thinking post-secondary preparation, what's absolutely fundamental for post-secondary preparation? And let's put that aside. And now let's think about the creative cool stuff. And can we have an insurance policy that sits and then allows for small experiments where parents, kids can opt in and then you scale those. And so that's quite possible um, to do with, with a limited amount of risk in terms of superintendent, director of energy, that sort of stuff. Um, you, you see, you know, murmurs of it with charter schools or murmurs of it here. We, we have, uh, you know, specialization schools here, but they, they're still attempting 
to say, you know, you have to go down this path and you can't come back, right? Like you're, you go down this, you know, like they're asking my son, he's going to high school. Do you want to be an artist? And you can go to the art school. I'm like, well, he's 13. Like, what does, what does he know about being an artist? You know, like he, he doesn't know. He doesn't have enough exposure to know if, he, if he's supposed to be an artist or not. Um, so you can create these kinds of experiments, I think. Um, that would be one. The other is to really embrace lifelong learning. So right now, um, a big part of our problem is that our learning has a, it, it has a clock, right? The clock is 192 days and you have maybe 12 years. And then at that point, they have to hand you over to post-secondary or, you know, you may be deemed a failure in life. But there are lots of stories of people that come back much later on. And if we're really embracing lifelong learning and we all have to be going back to school and upskilling anyway, um, then all of a sudden it, it's, it's, not as, it's, it's not as demanding, is it, right? Because we, we have more options. If I take, you know, one thing and I don't like it anymore, I could take something else. If I stretch that out and I, I take off a, a bit of the edge on the, the, the $40,000, $60,000 a year price tag, right? Um, we can really stretch that out. I go, and I think once you do that, like anything else, like consider a video game. You, you play a video game, you don't cry about losing. You just go back in and play again, right? Until you get better each time. Uh, <clears throat> no, no, really just a, no, 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 no. I, I challenge that one because if you get to a certain <laughs> level and then you bomb out right at the end, there might be a little bit of a tear and possibly a tantrum as well too. Hey, um, as you're sitting there and talking um, and, and passing on this excellent advice about thinking about it, Again, I'm brought back to this notion that those who excel at the system end up being the custodians of the yeah. system. And particularly, you know, I, I watched this happen in the United Kingdom again and again and again, where you have an entire education system designed to winnow out the 2% who are going to go on to the higher education institutions from which all privilege and all success seem to emanate. And, 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 of course, when you, when you talk to people within the system, you say, do you think this is fair? Do you think this is right? Do you think that society is about haves deliberately about constructing haves and have-nots? I mean, the reality is all societies have haves, people who have and people who have not, but deliberately designing it so that you can narrow it down to a few people and they just look at you with blank faces and they go, what? Well, of course it's the right system. You know, I'm here. I've, I've got my Oxbridge degree and now I'm part of it. And it's yours. What, what, it, like, what if the leaders... Are, are these people, Phil, do they look like you? Uh, As in Caucasian I'm talking about, not you specifically, but... Yeah. Um, I would have said so 20 years ago, but as increasingly <laughs> those pathways have been opened up um, to people from all sorts of different backgrounds. People from different backgrounds drink the Kool-Aid too because power mm, and yeah. the concentration of power in the hands of the few is, 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 is again, it's a human trait. So, so what happens if the school leaders are the ones who are not the continuous learners and unlearners? They don't, they, they don't have that allegiance to lifelong learning. What, what if they're the ones resisting? What if it's them who's hol who are holding it all back and increasing that gap between what society needs our schools um, to do in terms of transformation of the potential of young people into the capabilities, the character and the competencies and the wellness they need to thrive? Yeah, no, it's, like, it's a great question. And I, I think um, the answer to that is, it's like the Wizard of Oz, right? Like Oz seemed amazing until you see him up close. 
and you realize perhaps maybe he's not such an amazing wizard after all. And so, you know, I was raised to think that, um, you know, it's great that some people have, you know, privilege and that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, my, my grandfather told me he was a bleed and breathe just like you. Um, and as a result, they're going to have weaknesses like everybody else. And their weakness is, is actually their arrogance creates a massive knowledge gap and they're unable to see waves of disruption coming. Um, you know, I can remember, you know, in, in, in my other life, I went and had a conversation with the folks at BlackBerry um, and they, they laughed me out of the room. I, I've had conversations with folks in the oil sands in Calgary and they've laughed me out of the room and their, their arrogance created an inability for them to see how somebody could disrupt them. And so I think it's the same you know, with, with schools, like um, at Ontario Virtual School, we have 20,000 active students. I go, that makes us one of the biggest high schools in Canada. And uh, 60% are girls. Probably in the world. Probably yeah, in the world. So, so, so 60% are, are female students taking STEM courses, university preparation STEM courses. So that wasn't something that we set out to do. Right. Uh, that was something the disruption started happening. And so many people would be like, why would why wouldn't they just take it at school? And when you ask the girls, they say psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't set out to design that. But the disruption, the framework was there for the disruption and it started to happen. So while people are having this conversation about, you know, how do we get more girls to get into science and maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that the students started to choose for themselves by finding their own tools. And and much of that was word of mouth. Much of that wasn't really clever marketing. It was just one young girl saying to another girl, you should take this course with this professor because it's going to create that. And so I think you start to see that, you know, not just with us, but you start to see that in different models where people are saying, Hey, I'm going to find, you know, I don't have books in Trinidad. I'm going to find a BitTorrent and I'm going to get all the books that I can get so long as I have a, a connected device, right? Yeah. I'm going to, you know, money's frozen one place. I'm going to find a cryptocurrency that's going to allow me to move this money, right? People will start to find those opportunities because no gatekeeper um, has the panacea or a monopoly on, on knowledge. And so there's always an Achilles heel that allows for that opening. And there's no doubt that uh, <clears throat> technology is helping shift the power and where the power sits. I want to I want to explore this a little bit further with you, uh, and I'm conscious of time, and, and I know you've got a, a, a hard time. You need to go, so I'm going to I'm going to ask these questions relatively quickly. We have an organisation in Australia called the CSIRO. It's a pretty significant organisation, and recently in July this year, they they um, published uh, a once in a decade report. It's a longitude study and, and it really looks at the kind of global mega trends that are going to be uh, reshaping our world all the way to 2042. And they had seven, seven kind of global trends. One of them is what we're talking about here. And that one that they had, they framed it as unlocking the human dimension, where we're elevating the importance of diversity, equity and transparency in business, in policy, in community decision-making and in our schools. How can we, Dwayne, go beyond a lovely diversity statement on a website or a special event that leans into inclusion or or talks about 
the, the value of equity? How can we move from, from them being important statements? Because they are important, because language is important, vision is important. But how can we move that in our schools? So young women, I mean, I want them to come to your school, mate, but I don't want them to be in this psychological fear place because the first step of psychological safety has got to be around identity safety. Right? And if they don't feel it, they're not going to lean into their own agency in any way in that, in that school setting. How can we actually transform our, our learning communities to be ecosystems that unlock the fullness of our human dimension? I think the way that we do that in practicality is really to think about what are the fundamental components that are standardized? What are the things that are universal? What are the things that are intersubjective? And pull those pieces apart. The things that are universal, we treat them as universal. The things that are intersubjective, then we allow them to start self-forming. So people have the ability to feel comfortable. I think, and I'll say this, and this is a probably a crazy thing to say at the end, but equity and inclusion inside of a school model has limits. And nobody wants to really come to terms with that. Um, people believe that it's absolute, right? Like it's, it's the, you know, you, you, the good guys versus the bad guys. Um, but it has limits, right? Um, you know, I, I said this before to someone. I said the fundamental component of school is to discriminate and categorize. I guess the fundamental core of it, whether everybody looks black or whether everybody looks white, whether it's a of, the school, of the current model of the current the current model right, yeah. is, is yeah. to discriminate. And you're discriminating because <laughs> the fundamental basis is scarcity, therefore competition. If we change the concept of scarcity to abundance and corporation, and I don't mean abundance in a new agey kind of a way, I mean actually creating more, um, then we have an opportunity to change. But so long as the premise of our school is scarcity and competition for scarcity, um, we're gonna run into the limitation all the time. Like it's a thought experiment, you just get to the end. Somebody yeah. has to get the job, right? Everybody can't, everybody can't be the CEO. Um, and so once you, once you get to that, you realize the thought experiment runs out. And so outside of though, we have to have a real honest conversation about premise and our premises were based on the limitations of the technology at the time how can we look at the different technologies that we have now and how can they shift our premise away from from scarcity in some areas not all away from scarcity and co and, and competition to abundance and cooperation and and to fundamentally create more for people in a sustainable way. I go, that's the challenge that I think we really face. And I don't think we go anywhere until we get to that. I, people think diversity and equity is, is, is the end goal. I don't think it's the end goal. I think it's a means to an end. There's so much more that we could be talking about with you, Dwayne. I actually think that's a fantastic point for us to wrap this up on because it's, it's, it's emblematic of your whole approach to thinking about the world, thinking about education's role within it and how um, we might help our children to thrive in their future. Um, you, you think in ways that other people don't think and you get out there and you do things about it in ways that other people don't. You are uh, a significant inspiration to us and to many 
and we want to thank you for your time today and for joining us on Game Changers. Thank, thank you very much for having me and, and thank you very much for being gracious. You know, you, you guys have said a, a, a lot of really nice things and uh, perhaps maybe I should, I should start to believe some of them. Um, but, but thank you, I really appreciate it. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.